Mr. Brad is coming up uh, to bring the message to us. I wanted to interject something here. This isn't on the order of service, but I thought asking forgiveness was better than permission. <laughs> now, I have scribbled something on a piece of paper I've been carrying in my Bible for a couple of weeks, and I just wanted to mention it before Pastor Brad brings the message this morning. I think most of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the most quoted preachers in the English-speaking world for 150 years. Became a Christian at 15 in England. By age 19, he was pastoring the largest Baptist church in all of London. And I heard another pastor the other day mention this quote by Spurgeon, and it came to my mind, and it's brief. Spurgeon once declared his pulpit to be more influential than the throne of the King of England, for he brought a message from the throne of God to that pulpit and delivered the truth of Christian doctrine. Spurgeon was not an egotist, but he believed that the message he brought from the Word was the very Word of God. And I just want to pray for Brad before he brings the message this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a pastor who's committed to your Word, who studies it, who lives it, and we know that his desire is for us to be fed spiritually and for our faith to be built, and we pray your Holy Spirit would accomplish that through what he says to us today from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would enable each of us to have understanding and insight so that we might better know how to leave this place living as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On that note, if you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we resume our study this morning of this Second letter to Pastor Timothy, who was in Ephesus. As we've been looking at Timothy, we have seen some very familiar themes that run both through First and Second Timothy. So it's very clear that the same author authored both letters, and really the same ideas, the same the same sorts of, of focus was on Paul's mind when he wrote to. Timothy, which is the same focus that I've been trying to highlight week in and week out, and probably to this point, you're like, he's probably going to talk about faithfulness again. And you'd be right. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about, because if you see my, the sermon title on the back of your bulletin, Enduring Fidelity, oh, it, is just, it's, it should not be lost on us, right? It should not be lost on us that as Paul is nearing the end of his life, he's already written Timothy once in 1 Timothy saying, be faithful, be faithful to, to bring truth to false teachers. Be faithful to have faithful men leading. Be faithful to have faithful servants serving the church. Be faithful to faithful widows. And at the end of all things, Timothy, just be faithful. That's how First Timothy goes. Second Timothy is very similar. Hey, I've, I've told you to be faithful, Timothy, so be faithful. And he builds on that, and, and he doesn't, he's not trying to be novel. I've said this before, and I'm going I'm to say this again because it bears repeating. The goal of Scripture is not to be novel for novelty's sake. It shouldn't be our goal to come here every Sunday and hear something we've never heard before, because if we're preaching Scripture, that's probably not going to happen. What the goal of Scripture is, however, is to take these truths that we know, that we are familiar with, and again and again and again Give them to us so that as we imbibe them, they become not just ideas or propositions that we know, 
they become a part of who we are. So now it's not just I know the truth, I am identified with the truth. Now, Jesus alone is the truth. The God, the Father, God, the Son, they are the truth. We are identified with that truth. And so, Paul makes no apologies for, again, coming to Timothy with this notion of fidelity is important. And so, that's where we are this morning. This chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses today. It's probably something that's very familiar to you. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. And to think that this was written almost 2,000 years ago and how applicable it is right now in this very moment, that tells us that something beyond human agency put pen to paper for this, for this Bible, that this was inspired by the Holy Spirit, knowing the heart and nature of humanity apart from Christ, knowing that humans and times may change, or times may change, rather. Humans do not. And so, guess what? In first century church life, the sins that they were struggling with, the issues they were struggling with, in 2023 are still the things that we struggle with. Because time changes, technology even changes, humans don't change very much. And that is borne out in Scripture. That is why, right? This is why the transformation of Christ is, exact, is precisely so vital. Because something needs to intersect us in our own stubborn unchangefulness. Unchanging. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. In our own stubbornness, where we don't change, to introduce a change that absolutely has to happen. And that can only be done in Christ. So this morning, without further delay, let us turn our attention to this unchanging word that introduces change in us that we might be more Christ-like. So beloved of God, starting in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen without conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. When I think about this passage of Scripture, this particular paragraph where we are, it's arresting to me. It's arresting to me because of what it's designed to imply. Now, we, we know what it teaches explicitly, but so there's a phrase that comes to mind when I look at this and I think about what is the exhortation here? The exhortation, the phrase, the Latin phrase, which will be very familiar to some of you, is semper fi. And if you've ever been a Marine, or if you are a Marine, rather, I should say. 
and, or have know anything about the Marines, you know that is the motto for the Marines. Semper Fi. Fi is shortened for the Latin word fidelis. Semper Fidelis. And you probably know, if you know any of the history, that that simple phrase means forever faithful. It was meant to describe a branch of military that said, whatever, come, come war, come peace, come hell or high water, we will be faithful. And when I think about the calling of the Christian life, I can think of no better phrase to describe what it, how, do, how do we look at ourselves as men and women of God? Well, the battle cry of the church should be simplify, simplify Dallas, forever faithful. Because when we think about that phrase, there's something beautiful going on there that's simultaneous. When we think about the phrase simplify Dallas, while we know that humans are never perfectly faithful forever, there is one in all of creation that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When we think of Semper Fidelis, it describes God. It describes who God is. It describes His character. He is forever faithful. But it simultaneously is meant to describe the people who imitate God, the people who are reflections of God. What is our goal in life? What is the target we are aiming for is Semper Fidelis, fidelity, faithfulness in all things. This is exactly why this phrase, Semper Fidelis, if you were to read extensively, or not even all that extensively, just read a handful of the old Puritans, one of the things that they did that is lost in our culture that they focused on was faithfulness to God in old age. Several of them write about it about exhorting the elderly among their congregations to be mindful and intentional about their lives of godliness because Satan will creep in at the last hour and try to subvert and divert you. They were preaching a message saying, hey, beloved of God, the call to semper fidelis never fades. Even when we are maybe homebound and we can't even get out anymore, there is still a call on the Christian life to be faithful. This, what's, this is what makes First and Second Timothy to me so powerful. It's just a very simple clarion call to, hey, remember faithfulness. Semper Fidelis. As we've already said many times before, Paul is writing his last known correspondence to Timothy, and he's encouraging him. He's exhorting him. Hey, Timothy, be bold, right? Don't be timid. Be bold, He's, he's telling Timothy, guard that sacred deposit of the truth that has been given you. It's been given to us now in the Word of God, and we guard it. Timothy, guard that sacred Word of truth. Continue, Timothy, trusting in the Lord. Instruct others in the same. Well, those instructions, that very Word to us is exactly what we should be doing. Guarding that sacred deposit, being bold, entrusting this to other faithful people. Faithfulness, when we talk about being faithful, fidelity, we've got to understand, and I think we do if we've lived any amount of time, that faithfulness is filled with all kinds of hurdles. Because what happens when we're seeking to be faithful is the world and our flesh and the devil want to throw up roadblocks, throw up obstacles, divert us away from truth. Because when it when you think about what fidelity is, 
So faithfulness, basic faithfulness at its very core is sacrificial. If I'm going to faithfully love my wife, I've got to sacrifice in some ways. If I'm going to faithfully love my children, I'm going to have to sacrifice in some ways. If they're going to faithfully love me, they're going to have to sacrifice. If we're going to faithfully love God, no, because there's a lot of sacrifice, that will happen. So what the world will do, the world determines Christian God-centered fidelity as silly. You know why? Very simple. Because there is a death to self that has to occur, and that is a foreign thought in the minds and hearts that are far from God. Why should I die to self? Because if I don't look out for self, nobody will. And so death to self, you mean deny myself just simple pleasures that aren't hurting anybody? Deny myself the, the inner urges that I have? Well, yeah, that is exactly what we mean. And that's exactly the type of sacrifice that has to take place. Will you do it perfectly? No, I don't do it perfectly either. This is the beauty of faithfulness, because I'm going to come back around to this idea, but I'm going to drop it out here now, is repentance is a part of what it means to be faithful, to say, I've blown it. I've blown it again. And I don't want to stay here. I want to move back toward truth. Beloved, that's just as beautiful. It is just as beautiful in the kingdom of God as anything we do. How many of us love the parable of the prodigal son? I was just telling Richard over here before we came out, I love that story. Because you know what? You know what it tells us? When he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired hands have food to spare and I'm starving eating the pig slop. I'm going to go back to my father. Why does he do that? Because somewhere along the way, the father said, repentance is possible if you'll just but turn. I'm, I'm about to start preaching another sermon, so let me get back on track here. When we think about faithfulness, the world says it's folly because it's silly. But Paul says faithfulness is the essence of the Christian life. And he's saying, so Timothy and you, church, and, and me, Brad, so guard that deposit of faith and truth because that is the primary motivation. That's, that's the place where we draw our power, our strength, to be faithful. Paul continues this. Now, how does he do this? He's doing this from kind of a negative standpoint this morning. He's telling us what not to do in order to be faithful. So he, he's telling Timothy, uh, he, he's going to say this in just a minute, avoid all these things, but he, he's, he's listing out exactly what we shouldn't be if we're going to be faithful. That's his point. But when we, when, if we're going to avoid these things in our quest for faithfulness, we need to understand that everything he's just laid out here are stumbling blocks. So if, if we're not going to live by the flesh, what are we going to do? We've got to live by the Spirit. So to not live by the flesh is to live by the Spirit. To live by the Spirit is to not live by the flesh. You know, in a culture that doesn't like binaries, that's exactly what that is. That's binary. <laughs> it's a choice for one or the other. We're either going to live by the flesh or we're going to live by the Spirit. And in some of those instances where we cross, where we cross, where, where in our quest to live by the Spirit, we indulge the flesh, this is where the repentance comes back in, into play. But if we're going to avoid following lies, what do we have to do? follow truth. If we're going to avoid death, we have to be given to life. 
So Paul is challenging Timothy and us to be people of the gospel. So this morning, there's one idea here, and it's simple. It's not earth-shattering. Holiness and truth must govern our lives, right? Very simple, straightforward idea that's coming from this paragraph. Holiness and truth really must govern our lives. And so when we look at what's going on here, one of the things that we see in the Christian life is there is a fight for holiness. The inclination to not be holy is so strong even after conversion that holiness we have to fight for. Because, you know, it's just easier to indulge our flesh than it is to listen to and walk by the Spirit. Here's some some really low-hanging fruit examples. It's easier to get angry at you and snap your head off than it is for me to take an offense, possibly, and choose humility and kindness. It's easier for me to want revenge on you if you've hurt my feelings rather than to step back, be forgiving, and try to figure or, or, or let love cover a multitude of sins. It's easier for me to indulge my flesh when the pleasure is calling and to just let myself go than it is for me to take a step back and endure a moment of sacrifice and perhaps even struggle and pain for the sake of doing what is right over what's easy. So holiness is a fight. If you can hear my voice, it is a fight for you. And that's okay. Paul says, keep fighting. Guess what? When you fall down and it'll happen, you get up and you start the fight again. And then when you fall down again, you get up and you start the fight again. And when you fall down again, you get up and you start the fight again. The day that we stop fighting is the day that we are dead. You may have tattered knees and clothes and elbows from all the times you've fallen, but brother or sister, if you are getting back up to fight, God be with you. And He is and He will be. So when we look at the text in front of us, Here's what we have. It's very simple. Christ commands holiness, not hedonism. Now, John Piper has his whole thing about Christian hedonism, which uh, I'm not going to get into right now. It's good stuff. Um, we, we, we find our joy in glorying in Christ, in glorying in God, and so that the Christian hedonism is delighting in the glory of God. But what Christ commands is holiness, not hedonism. And this is where I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer got it, and you've heard me quote this before. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the gospel bids us to come and die. And this was not spoken lightly, right? This was a man who was watching what Hitler was doing in the world, so he wasn't writing this from an ivory tower at no cost to himself. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wasn't perfect, and he has some weird, weird views. On this, he's right. There's some other things we would say he was probably not right. He's neo-Orthodox. But in this particular thing, he's absolutely right. The gospel does bid us to come and die, to come and die to ourselves, to die to the flesh, to die to all those things that seem so easy and good and right in a moment for something that is much larger, eternal, and everlasting, which is Christ. Paul begins this. Literally, but know this or but understand this, depending on how your translation reads, but understand this, that in these last days there will come times of difficulty. I want to stop here for a second because there's something happening here. This word but there, that conjunction, he's contrasting this. He's creating a contrast. But know or understand this. So if you let your eyes glance back up just a few verses ahead or above in verse 24, 
And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul had just told Timothy about this. Then he says, all right, now here's your contrast. This is what in, in grammatical terms is called a strong adversative. He's changing direction. Now, you, this is how you deal with some people who are, are a little misguided and, and your opponents. But understand this. That word understand there is an imperative verb. You've listened to me enough now to know I like to point those out because that is not just a call of cognition. Paul is commanding a perpetual understanding. But know and keep knowing this. But understand and keep understanding this one idea. And what he says is that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. So what Paul is doing here for us, I want to set this straight for us. Paul is not pointing to Timothy of something that might be coming in the future. He's talking to Timothy about life and ministry now. Talking to Timothy, it was present for Timothy then, it is present for us now. Without getting into a whole uh, discussion on end times, Paul understands, at least from this context and other writers in the New Testament do, that Jesus' first coming, rather, inaugurated the last days. And so the days in which we live are the days in between the first and second coming of Christ where we are awaiting the consummation of the kingdom. And so we need to understand that if that's true, and it is, then there is going to be battles and skirmishes within that time period for the hearts of the faithful. And so when we're looking at these last days, Paul has in mind the days in which we live in, and it's interesting here. He says there will come times of difficulty. What is it then that he's calling us to do? When in the face of what is difficult, hey, these are the last days. There are going to be times of difficulty. How do we handle that? His simple prescription is be holy, be faithful, choose the things of God over the things of God of this world. Now, something interesting here about this word, however your um, translation may read, the ESV says there will come times of difficulty. You can find that word also, you don't have to turn there, in Matthew 8, 28. Now, in Matthew chapter 8, around that time, around that uh, area, Jesus is describing for us, or Matthew rather, is describing for us the demoniacs that Jesus came into contact with, and he says that they were fierce. And so, this word that Paul uses here, difficult, fierce, it's a bit more graphic than then. It's just kind of hard. It's, these are fierce days, violent days, days where people come knives out, guns drawn, ready for a fight. So, not just only, just not just think of, oh, it's kind of like walking uphill. It's kind of like walking uphill with people shooting at you. And you're having to dodge and take cover and get down and, and really be mindful of your surroundings. Really be a, a, a attentive to what's going on because the days are fierce. And so what is the prescription? It's holiness. It's, it's faithfulness. But understand this, that in these last days there will come times of difficulty. And then Paul sets it out. Verses 2 through 5 give us the ways in which we are going to face obstacles. It should not be lost on us that the first thing that Paul says here, starting in verse 2, is for men or people 
will be lovers of self. Now, that ought, to, that, that ought to stick. Let that be the heading. And let everything else come underneath that one idea, that people will be lovers of self. That sets the tone for the rest of this list. All these other vices are somehow fruits of that root, lovers of money. If I love myself, I want to love money because money what maybe buys me happiness. If I love myself, if I'm a lover of myself primarily, I am going to be proud. I am going to be arrogant. And I'm going to be abusive to other people who try to take away from that. Disobedient to parents, certainly ungrateful and certainly unholy. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. How many times does he mention arrogance? Three, proud, arrogant, conceited. Lover of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So when you start thinking about the list that Paul's talking about here, he's talking about people who love themselves and then all the things that flow out of that, all kinds of sin and abuse and hardship, because all the vices that you see here, in some sense of the word, they flow out of this supreme idea of selfishness completely preoccupied with self to the point that it dominates everything that I do. And so if I'm a lover of self, primarily I can't be a lover of you. I can't be a lover of God, and I can only be a lover of pleasure because the only thing that can give self any purpose or worth is pleasure apart from God. We're getting into deep philosophical territory here where we're seeing there is a deep philosophy at work, but, beloved, it's really that simple. We can try to overcomplicate it if we want to, or we can just understand that the basis of sin primarily is me loving myself, because when I only love myself and only have self in view, and you're not a part of that framework, you're easy to step on, you're easy to step over, you're easy to hurt, you're easy to discard, you're easy to do away with, because the only thing in my framework that I see is me staring back at me. And if you put an obstacle there, you're going to be a casualty of war. How much of this nonsense here does the world tout as brave, fearless, courageous, I mean, my goodness, you don't have to go very far in corporate America to realize that treachery is awarded. <laughs> Be treacherous. Slit your, uh, uh, your partner's throat if it gets you ahead. You don't have to go very far to see heartlessness. People being unappeasable, it's never enough, right? My goodness, the greatest show in the movie, there's a song about it. It literally says it's never enough. Now, the song, I should, I should add context to that. The song is very sweet. Uh, she's singing a song to, a, to a, never mind, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but when I heard that song in the movie, it, 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 it's, it's the mantra of our culture. It's never enough, never enough, never enough. Got to have more, got to have, it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better. We love distraction. We love distraction. So much of the media is used for distraction. So much of entertainment has no value. It's meant to distract from things that are actually going on and so forth. 
But all these vices, they flow out of selfishness. They're preoccupied with the self. And each of these sins is a fleshly pursuit. It centers around either pleasure of some sort, gain of some sort, or making myself more grand than I actually am. This whole little paragraph here is getting at the heart of humanity, and I'm telling you, you read that list, and what do you think? Well, things haven't changed much. If this was true before 100 A.D., before 100 A.D., this was already happening. And in 2023 A.D., it continues to happen. It's almost as if the writer and the inspirer of this book knew what he was talking about. Having seen humanity from beginning to end, understanding this is how it will be unless something powerful intersects that and transforms it. If you notice how he ends this list out, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. When you look at that word, appearance of godliness, there's a, there's a couple of things going on here. We're looking at somebody who is false. That word there is uh, where we get our word, at least some part of our word, to morph from. Uh, and so here, the point that Paul is using, or the point that Paul is making by using this word specifically is that it has this look of substance, but there's no real substance there. It has the look of something full, but if you knock on it, it's hollow. There's nothing inside. Or, as Jesus would have said to the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. These tombs that look grand on the outside, but there's only death inside. So this is the sum of that list. So when you think of the, all that list in 2, 3, 4, the sum of it comes in verse 5, as they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. Now, this is a little bit more insidious here, because what Paul is driving at here is people who look religious, but who really aren't. People who look like they're proclaiming truth, but they really aren't. And we see this. We, we see this going on in our culture, and it primarily revolves around the sexual ethic of the culture in which we live, of promoting an ethic and a lifestyle that goes against the precepts of Scripture. And then we hear people who have historically been vocal about prescribing to Christianity come out and begin to identify with the world's ethics, saying, well, love is love, and these people genuinely love, and if they genuinely love and God is love, then that all this is really from God and we can't condemn it. But love, that is from the pit of hell. Because what that's beginning to do is try to take wedges out of the truth. And it's more insidious when people try to act like they're people of the truth while proclaiming a lie. That is exactly why you get this very stern. They have a form of godliness but deny its power. Avoid such people. That is not mild. That is an express command. That is to avoid and keep avoiding. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying be hateful to those people. Paul is not saying be overly critical. Paul is not saying be condemning of these people. He's simply saying when you see someone claiming to be of truth and yet parroting a lie, we avoid that because they are trying to appear godly, denying its power, and trying to fill a space 
that they cannot fill. Again, Paul is not, there is no room for hatefulness because despite the fact that people are parroting alive, what we still have to remember is that even as much as we disagree with what they're doing, they are created in the image of God. We don't get a free pass just to be mean for mean's sake. We can be bold. We can be firm. We can be uncompromising in the truth. But you know what we can't be? Is unloving. We can't be ungracious. We can't be unnecessarily mean or rude. But no, if you say things that are true in a world that clings to what is false, you'll be accused of hatefulness all the same or bigotry. But beloved, let us take steps to show the love of Christ, but also to give no quarter to false teaching. It's not harmless. We don't get the privilege of not confronting it. Because when someone claims to be of God and then they spout something that is completely opposite of what God teaches, they are false. Or let me say it like this. Let me be careful here. They are speaking what is false. Either they are false or they're very confused and they need correction. And the discerning Christian labors to see which it is. Because the truth matters. And so when we think about what it means to live as people who are uh, faithful, it's, it's people who embrace holiness. Now, granted, we all walk with a limp, and I've already made caveats for the fact that we're, holiness is going to mean repenting. Uh, a part of our holiness is repentance. But when we talk about being holy, what does it mean to be holy? Well, it means to be, we could take the, the technical definition, separate, otherly. It means that. But also, we could also say, what does it mean to be holy? It means that I'm striving after the things of God, and by virtue of that striving, I'm going to be different. If I'm striving for fidelity, if I'm striving for faithfulness to Scripture, I'm going to stand out from the world. And so those things are so valuable because the day we stop striving for holiness is the day that we do become lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, lovers of ease, and the despiser of the things of God. So Paul picks up on the second half of this, for among them, having the appearance of godliness but denying the power, avoid such people, and he's building off this idea, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. So what happens if truth is not our anchor, there's, there's one sure outcome of that. We're going to drift. If truth doesn't hold us fast... We're going to drift. Now, the good thing is, is we can be recaptured and brought back to being held fast. But when we lose our moorings in truth, where we're going to go, there's no telling where we go. So when we think about what is, what is going on here in the flow of this, so having listed these sins and the people who have the form of godliness, so what, are, what do those sins produce? Well, often false teachers who want to seek to deceive the unwise. Now, when you read the phrase, 
weak women. I want you to understand that Paul is not making some sort of gross generalization about women. Paul is not speaking of women in any sort of derogatory way, not saying, well, it's the women among us who are weak and get deceived. That's not his point. That is absolutely not what he is saying. But if I'm being honest, it's not exactly sure what he is saying. The most natural reading of this text, especially given the fact he says burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, is that one thing that we can say is this is not women in general, but he has a specific grouping of women in mind, and, and, and perhaps even a group of women that he knew to be uh, in the Ephesus church. The, the two most likely scenarios are recent converts, women who have been recently converted and are still walking through what it means to be faithful and holy. They would be easy targets, especially in a male-dominated culture where you could come in and you could assert some sort of pseudo-authority, and these new converts have no idea. And okay, well, if you're saying that, that's one. Or two, a group of women who are converted, but perhaps not fully turned from their sin, like which might be the implication here, burdened with sins, that are still working through their own sin patterns, and so they're easily susceptible to false ideas about God. And the reason I find that attractive is because as a pastor, I'm sure Richard has had this experience, Gardner, I'm sure you had this experience, where you find people who get caught in cycles of sin, and it's interesting how their view of God begins to change. All of a sudden, these things that have been bedrock truths are now a little bit more malleable than they once were. All of a sudden, this thing that was once black and white is, is, now, is now gray. And, and you hear somebody speak as if they've been liberated from some sort of oppressive system, and you're pleading with them. You're in a sin pattern. You're not thinking straight. No, why do, why do we even, why is this sin? What's so sinful about what I'm doing? And you watch them go down that road, and often, and often they've read heard or somehow come across ideas that challenge, we'll just call it the simple, true gospel from the Bible, and their sin lifestyle makes it easy for them to follow it. You know what we would call those people? Weak men and women who are led astray, who false teaching creeps into. So, I'm very inclined to think that that this, this group of weak women were, were some who were still working through some of their sin issues, and it became easy to follow false teaching. What he says here is so important. Led astray by various passions. So again, a lot of this might even be sexual in nature. But listen to this, verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. What is it that we're looking at here, this, the emptiness of false teaching, always giving you all these novel ideas without ever really leading you anywhere? That's exactly what false teaching does. You know why? Because Satan knows that you've got to string people along. And as long as I'm dropping bait giving you these novel ideas, I don't have to lead you anywhere. I can lead you in circles if I want to, because you're always learning something, but you're never really coming 
to any fixed point. So there's no truth in that. There's no hope in that. There's death. He rounds us out. He ends this by giving this uh, an example of Janus and Jambres, or Jambres, who opposed Moses, so of, of the Pharaoh's court in Egypt. And what's interesting is the way he speaks to them, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. The way this is written, the implication is not just opposed Moses and their teaching, but they had an opposing lifestyle. Their whole, the very essence of who they were as living creatures was opposed to Moses. They lived against the truth. Jo, uh, uh, Moses brought the truth of Yahweh to Egypt, and these men lived against it and sought to corrupt other minds. In fact, he says, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding of the faith. So look at those three descriptions here. Opposed to the truth, corrupted minds, disqualified in the faith. Beloved, these are marks of false teaching, but you know what else they're marks of? They're just marks of godlessness in general. So not only the false ideas, but godlessness. Everything that you see here in this paragraph, it points to people who are opposed to truth, disqualified regarding the faith, and corrupted in mind. So as I said a moment ago, it's not harmless it has a point, and it isn't gracious to just let it go. But I love how he ends this. But, again, strong changing of the direction, strong adversative is what it's called. But they won't get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of that, or was that of those two men. What is he saying here? Truth and goodness prevail. Truth and goodness prevail. So how, how, how do you look at this paragraph with hope? Yeah, it's going to happen. These things are going to be present. We're going to have to deal with this. What is our hope in the midst of it? That truth and goodness prevail. These, these things will go for a time, but they won't get very far. So how do, how do we live, you and me? How do we live without despair in a world where it seems to be spiraling out of control? As simple as this is going to sound, this is the answer, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, understanding that we answer to a higher person than the man or woman standing right next to us, with demands so clearly laid out in Scripture, any man who would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily, and come after me. That is what Jesus calls us to do, to fix our eyes on him so as not to despair. When I think about truth, I can only, I can sum it up by saying this. Truth is more than right propositions, though at the very least it's that, but it's more than that. Truth is a way of life. It's a way of living. Jesus, when he was on the earth, said, I am the truth. So what does it mean to be anchored in the truth? It means clinging to Christ. If Jesus is the truth, and we're called to, to believe and live out truth, that means that our beliefs come through Christ, and our lives are centered around clinging to Christ. 
That is why the arguably one of the most well-known apostles of, of all of Scripture, Paul, <laughs> makes this statement, I chose to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified, making a statement about what is the anchor of the soul and the hope. It is Christ. When we cling to the truth of Christ, it compels us to say no to sin, yes to holiness. Truth is what frees us from the lies of the devil. Truth is what the Holy Spirit guides us in as we go through life. Jesus has given us truth, not that we would lord it over other people or berate people who are wrong, but that we might have life and have it more abundantly and shepherd lost souls along the pathway of truth. Some will come, some will not. Some will look like they're coming for a while and then they'll leave. And some will look like they'll never come and then, lo and behold, the Lord brings them in. And in all those scenarios, our, our position doesn't change. I'm going to walk along the pathway of truth with my little limp, and I'm going to be willing to tell you about it if you'll give me a chance. And I can tell you of all my imperfections, and I can tell you how sometimes I hang on however loosely, but at the end of the day, I come back around to the truth. Truth is no small matter, beloved. And can I just encourage you? It is something worth fighting for. It's something worth standing for. It's something worth losing for. And by losing, I mean sacrifice. It's something worth giving ourselves toward. It is something to come worth coming back around to again and again to remind ourselves, let God be true and every man be a liar. So the question we have to ask is, do we love truth? Because it gives us freedom. It gives us freedom, a, a deep freedom, freedom from all sorts of things that would try to capture our minds and hearts. Do we love truth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. There's so much here, so much here. And I pray that it captures us. I pray that it captures me. I pray that it captures everybody in this room. And I pray maybe that you'll use it to capture other people. Father, we want to be captive to the truth so that we don't indulge the lie. We want to be captive to the truth so that we don't give ourselves to what is false. Oh, Father, keep us captive to the truth, we pray so that we understand that true food and true drink comes from the fountain of truth of Christ. And may that fount reshape us into a picture that beautifully reflects you to the world. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.